to City Watch on WBAI. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. My co-host, David Brand, is off today. With so much going on in our city and our world, it can just seem so overwhelming. So I hope that this weekend you did get a chance to get outside, safely of course, and enjoy the warmer weather. As I've been reading stories about friction and violence over face masks, about reopenings, about when a vaccine will be ready to spare us from this virus, it can just seem so exasperating. In times of crisis, we look for hope. We search for peace. We seek comfort from friends and family who bring us joy, who help alleviate our pain. Helen Keller once said, although the world is full of suffering, it is full also of the overcoming of it. And while it may seem cliche to say we're all in this together, many people are not. They do not enjoy the privileges that so many others have, larger houses where they can weather the storm and stay safely away from others, the ability to put food on the table for themselves and their families, and secure jobs. We all may want this pandemic to end. That is where we may think alike. But we must consider those in our city and our country and our world who just don't have the resources or the relationships to ease their pain and overcome this. We're asking so much from our health experts and our essential workers and our elected officials because we do need their counsel, we need their expertise, and we need their support, and in particular for many people their financial support to get us through this period. Today on City Watch, I'll talk with one of our more dynamic state elected officials, New York State Assembly member Kathy Nolan of Queens. Then I'll bring you a conversation with the head of Greenwood Cemetery, where many of us, including my spouse, have gone for some peace amid this pandemic. And then I'll talk with an author from Manhattan about how grandmothers are making a difference at this time. Every part of our world has changed. And for those of us, like me, who are older and much older, (laughs) the traditional rites of passage that we enjoyed in our younger years are not being experienced by our children and our young adults. Schools are closed, and it's unclear when they're going to officially reopen and in what form. And as we head into June, students aren't going to proms or enjoying that thrilling moment that many of us enjoyed where they could step on stage to pick up a graduation diploma. WBAI correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston has been chronicling the effects of the pandemic on New Yorkers, and she spoke with one high school senior about her future. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's coronavirus diary. My name is Alicia Joseph. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and I go to the Chapin School on the Upper East Side. Being a senior and knowing that I won't have my senior traditions in the time that I expected is super difficult, but my school has been really on top of making their students feel very like safe and reassured that we are going to be celebrated in one way or another. Um, we have a couple of Zoom calls that will celebrate the senior class, and my school is also moving commencement and prom to either August or November. so. I feel really reassured that I will be celebrated in the way that I, um, the way that I feel like I should be celebrated. But at the same time, it's sad that it's not during the time I expected it to be. I expected to be finishing my classes, and I'm also the dance team's vice president. So I think just leading the show was what I was really looking forward to, and just not having that opportunity makes me really sad but also just like graduating with my friends, going to prom, 
and just making a lot of memories with my teachers and friends. I learned a lot about the power of community. I think during this time and not being around people, I think we have a deeper appreciation for the people in our lives and how strong those relationships truly are. I'm a part of the community-based organization Breakthrough New York. I've been with them since I was in sixth grade. They've been really on top of making sure that their students are well-supported. They send out a lot of emails about different resources for students just in case that they don't have a TV provider or internet service or just resources to make sure that they're getting their best education. My teachers generally do care about their job and that they actually want to see us succeed and they want us to feel happy in the environment that we're in. So they're putting their best foot forward, even though this is not the best situation to be in. From a friend to friend perspective, I truly value the memories that we have right now. I think when we're in school, we're so caught up with just having a good time with one another and we're not really thinking about like, this is a memory that I will keep with me forever. And I think now that we're in this situation, I fully understand the impact my friends have had on me and the impact I have on my friends. And I think I just have a deeper love for them and I miss them very much. Um, my dad doesn't live with me, so I haven't seen him for a very long time in person. And I just, I have a deeper understanding and appreciation for the family dynamic. Um, I have, I'm spending a lot of time with my mom and I love her so much. I think we grew a lot closer during this time. And my dad, he was affected with um, by Corona. So I think just being affected on a personal level, it just made me appreciate our relationship even more. And I know that we're working super hard to um, make our bond stronger. After I graduate from high school, I think I'm going to spend a lot more time with my family and friends if um, the environment allows. I think after high school, I'm going to focus a lot on what I want to do as a career. I know that I want to work with the children. So this summer, if we're allowed to work or allowed to be out with other people more frequently, I think I'm going to um, do an internship in where I can work with children again. I would say hold on to the memories that you have right now. I think it's during this time, just take the time to actually sit down and reflect on all the great memories that you have. And even though things aren't working out the way that you want to, you still have a whole future ahead of you where you can have even better memories with the people that you'll meet in the future. And I understand that it's super hard right now that we all expected that we would be celebrating things together, but we still have that bond that keeps us united. So even though we don't have physical events to go to, we always have those relationships. Alicia Joseph is a high school senior from Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. That was WBAI correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston. Please visit us at WBAI.org where you can hear all of Celeste's profiles of New Yorkers as they experience this pandemic. Thanks for tuning in to WBAI today. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and you're listening to City Watch. As the state begins the process of reopening certain regions, there's also talk of reconvening the state legislature. Given the pandemic, our state elected officials are going to have to prioritize measures like addressing our health and safety, but also our economy. So I reached out to a fellow Queens resident, Assemblymember Catherine Nolan, to ask her about the legislature's priorities. She's represented the 37th Assembly District in Queens since 1984, and that district includes neighborhoods like Sunnyside, Massbeth, Ridgewood, and Long Island City. She was appointed Deputy Speaker in 2018 and previously chaired the Assembly's Education Committee. 
She also serves on a number of other committees, and she's active in a number of local civic associations in her district. Welcome back to WBAI. So the pandemic is affecting all aspects of our lives, and next to our health, one of the most troubling issues we have to deal with is the economic impact. So given the surging unemployment rate, what are you and your colleagues doing to address this? Well, obviously, you know, though no one could have predicted, we have a system in place that should be able to respond more quickly. And just yesterday, uh, almost the entire uh, members of the Democratic majority in the Assembly, I think everyone was on the Zoom call, met with Commissioner Reardon to go over what needs to be done to try and resolve all the complaints that have come in and the delays that have ensued. You know, you're dealing, it's an antiquated system, and, you know, this is a classic example where maybe we should have been paying more attention. It kind of hummed along, but it wasn't prepared for this kind of uh, a tsunami of of, uh, claims. Having said that, I know, for example, in our office, we have over 300 people that we've been assisting uh, who've contacted our office that we've tried to put through a portal where they can get answers to their questions. But having said that, the commissioner has assured us that, yes, the money is there, yes, the claims are being paid, and they have begun to catch up. Um, The governor has put over, uh, I guess, several thousand uh, state employees from other agencies have been retrained and redirected to try to help uh, handle the call volume, and that seems to be making a difference. And I think Commissioner Reardon was pretty upfront about the problem is still remaining, but uh, they definitely seem to be, I hope, on, on a better path. What are some of the measures that you think need to be prioritized right now? Well, I think, for example, we did a bill, and this is where I, I will say, having served in the legislature a long time, that it being experienced sometimes means you, you can find the moment. So having been involved in the paid family leave issue for well over 20 years, and then in uh, 45 years ago, finally getting it uh, four years ago into law, we were able to do an expansion in a very um, – that session that we had March 18th that was so sort of dramatic. You know, there was no one in the chamber. It was so different, so different than anything I'd ever done in all the years I was there. But um, my Republican colleagues, you know, kept me on my feet for two hours because many of them are philosophically opposed to paid family leave. But we managed to break through that, and we got many, many votes, obviously. And we did expand paid family leave to include these situations of quarantine, um, if you know your employer says that you have to be quarantined at home, you might be able to get paid family leave. And we made sure that the uh, the fund that that you pay into and employees pay into um, was secure. And uh, going forward, I believe that this can be a way to help people in the short term. Again, as with unemployment, get some benefits in the short term until the economy opens up and things go back uh, to a better place. You just mentioned uh, how the legislature had to operate in March. How, you know, talk about those changes and what it's like going through this as an elected official when we can't all be together. Well, it's been very challenging and and it's sad. You know, I think a lot of us are coping. We have to be honest about our emotions here. It's very sad. I mean, we all know people who have died. We have thousands of New Yorkers who uh, were taken ill, thousands, tens of thousands who died. It's, it's devastating. And even within the legislature, we had five. We have five colleagues who've been diagnosed with COVID. Three of them were on respirators for a while, and it was all around the time that we were there. So it was you know, very sobering and, and a little bit scary. And we had to make sure we took precautions. And you know, the Assembly Chamber is the largest legislative chamber in the United States. It's a very uh, imposing room built 
uh, at a time when New York was really uh, trying to show the rest of the world how important it was. It's a very big room. Uh, for those who have not been there, it's you know those of you who have know it's cavernous really, and uh, to be there by myself as the the lead sponsor of this important bill with only one Republican or two Republicans in the chamber was, um, and our majority leader uh, Crystal People Stokes was really, uh, you know, at one level I want to say it was it was a, a sad feeling, but it was also a, a feeling that democracy can go on, uh, that our system it can go on no matter what is thrown at it, and that was. To me, that was very important in the long run that we showed, you know, for history that the legislature could function in the middle of this pandemic. As some regions move to reopen, how soon is too soon, particularly in New York City? And what are you hearing from your constituents about this? Well, I think everyone would like to feel they can get outside, and certainly masks and gloves are making a difference, and people would feel the rate of infection has gone down. But we're all, I think, aware there's not a person in New York. I live relatively near Wycliffe Heights Hospital, and the whole siren, the sound of those sirens, for especially for a number of days in April, was just uh, devastating and emotional, and, you know, no one wants to go back to that. But I think one of the realities is we're not, unfortunately, getting the assistance from the federal government that we should on tracing and contact tracing, as they've done in South Korea and Germany and other places, to keep the rate of infection low. And until that, the state is able to, uh, and city are able to provide that or supplant what really should be federal uh, assistance, we're going to have, we're going to struggle to reopen, I think, because we can't do the kind of contact tracing. I know I, certainly I've not been tested. I, you know, I come in contact with a lot of people, but I haven't had any symptoms and I'm not going to try to, you know, nobody wants to jump a line, right, when you're an elected official and insist on getting tested. But at some point, we're all going to have to be tested so that the city can figure out where the spots of infection are. And, you know, so much is still not known. Um, I'm sure you and many of your listeners, I know I try to read everything I can get my hands on, but so much is still not known. So I think until we have a better testing tracing system set up, which unfortunately should be the federal government's responsibility, but they're, they're abdicating it here, um, I think we're going to have a tough time before we reopen. The landscape is going to be significantly different for small businesses. I mean, many are not going to reopen because they've suffered too much financial harm. What do you feel they need? Well, I think that there was a lot of talk. There's been some talk in the legislature about uh, loan programs, and I know there's a, a, a lot of uh, business uh, community groups trying to come up with loan rent forgiveness. I, I do think many small businesses will reopen. I do. I think that if landlords are flexible about the rent and people understand that they're in it together and, uh, you know, people maybe come back maybe with fewer employees, uh, but many small businesses, certainly in Ridgewood, Sunnyside, Long Island City, I mean, I uh, walked on Fresh Pond Road the other day, and my local florist is determined to come back. He was in the store. Um, people are trying to come up with ways to, um, you know, have curbside, you know, ordering and uh, only a certain amount of people in the store. Um, I know, like, our local hardware store was able to stay open the whole time by having people wait outside. So, I, you know, small businesses are very innovative. Uh, people come up with new ideas. It's really remarkable to see that. Now, that's not to say people aren't hurting and we need to do perhaps – some kind of forgiveness program, some kind of a loan, you know, no interest loan. I mean, lots of things need to be done. And we did have a hearing on small business uh, this week also, another gigantic Zoom call in the legislature where we heard the New York State Business Council and other groups talk about programs like this. And I would think that we will try to put them in place. Obviously, sales taxes are down, lots of revenues down too. So the state has to be very careful what it actually does. But I think there is an interest in trying to do some kind of a no interest loan or forgiveness or 
something that lets a business get back on its feet. The rent moratorium that's been extended until August, is this enough? What else should be considered? Well, I think we're going to have to do more than that, obviously, because we have to let landlords have to be able to pay their property taxes. Again, another key, key part of the revenue that pays for police, fire, nurse, you know, health and hospitals um, is the property tax base. And um, I think we're going to have to do something to help landlords not, you know, obviously manage and then obviously to help renters. I, I think there's still a chance that a governor's uh, no eviction prohibition, the executive orders he's been empowered to issue, will probably continue even past that. But at some point, we have to try to put money in people's hands so that they can pay their rent, so that then the landlord can pay the mortgage, and, and even maybe more importantly, pay the property tax. So, uh, you know, I, again, it's all dependent on whether we do get federal aid. I know that we've gotten some, but, you know, I think most news articles have shown how much of it went to states that don't have a lot of cases, like North and South Dakota. Um, you know, I don't know how that happened, but it seems to have been, uh, you know, somewhat political perhaps and how President uh, 45 has steered the money. But we have to get it for New York City. We're the economic engine for the whole country, really. And the small businesses and the tenants are going to need support. And, you know, I'm certainly going to be advocating for that. And I think the legislature is trying to grapple with it. Um, it's not as easy as just saying it's going to get done. You know, they have to be the money in place. But I'm hopeful that we can come up with a way to do that. You mentioned the governor. How has he handled this crisis? And also compare how he's handled it with how the mayor has handled this. Well, you know, I'm not the person that likes to take pot shots because in the end, none of us are perfect. And obviously mistakes get made every day. But I want to take my hat off to both the mayor and the governor. Obviously, it's, it's fun to – that's like sport in New York, you know, to criticize – we criticize elected officials. And, uh, you know, I, I, I even hesitate. Uh, so obviously, I've been very unhappy with the federal government's response. I try not even to criticize there because it's an overwhelming tragedy. And I don't know what, what to make better by whether you feel better when you criticize, but it, what's it going to do? We need the federal government to respond. We, need, we must have that. But I do want to say I think Governor Cuomo has been remarkable. Uh, 75 days of talking to the public, trying to explain things, uh, you know, trying to show leadership. Um, initiate things, get uh, personal protective equipment to hospitals, force people maybe that had not always worked together on the hospital scene to work together. I mean, I think it's been very inspiring, and I think, you know, everyone watches it because we want to feel that we have some control over what's happening here, or at least some knowledge. And I think the mayor, too, though, often uh, sometimes, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but sometimes doesn't seem to hit the mark when he explains things. You know, you can never uh, say how how the greatness of New York City's agencies and the city workers. It's unbelievable the dedication of people who work in the health department and the health and hospital system. Um, the governor certainly with the MTA and the mayor with the MTA, the police, the fire, the EMS. We have to do something to raise the wages of EMS workers. I mean, people are out there dying, getting sick. I mean, it's, it, it's unbelievable, really. So that professionalism and dedication and love, love of New York City, I, you know, and I think you have to give the mayor credit for leading that, even with missteps here and there, and you have to give the governor credit for, for leading that. You know, and, it, and as I said, you know, it's kind of sport in New York to take shots at the guys at the top, but I, I don't want to do that today. I think that they're both working very, very hard. There have been calls by some of your assembly colleagues for a sweeping investigation into how nursing homes have responded and the state's response. What do you think about this? Well, again, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that, very frankly. I think that it's a terrible tragedy, but I think that nursing homes were absolved of some liability during the budget. Um, they were aware of that. Um, they had responsibilities. I don't uh, peak 
when the hospitals were being overrun, if I understand correctly, Dr. Zucker said you have to hold on to these patients. Sending them to hospitals wasn't going to make anybody's situation better, right? I mean, the hospital ERs were overflowing, the beds were overflowing. Um, how it was managed by the nursing homes, I think, is, is tragic, and perhaps there, there are grounds to look into that and understand why this terrible, terrible, terrible loss of life happened. But I wouldn't just reflexively say the nursing homes are right and everyone else is wrong. This is an industry that's had problems for years. A lot of them are for-profit or they have for-profit management companies. You know, my experiences with constituents uh, in nursing homes has sometimes been very, very uh, negative. Um, though I will say there are also very good ones. My own mother, who, who passed away in August uh, before this happened, was uh, residing in a nursing home. We just could not uh, care for her at home anymore, and um, she received great dignified care and good care. So I, I don't want to paint a broad brush on the industry either, but I don't think you can say that this is uh, only the governor's fault or something like that when these homes have an obligation to provide their workers with personal protective equipment. I mean, I think one of the biggest uh, things, if there is an investigation here, is why hospitals and nursing homes allowed their stockpiles to lapse uh, on this equipment. They, you know, it's, it's tragic. And obviously, then and then... We have to ask ourselves why we allowed so much of this to be made offshore so that we couldn't get it when we needed it. I mean, that's, to me, you know, horrible. And, again, gets back to the federal government's role, you know, when, when there were comments made like the stockpile is ours. Like, who's ours? I mean, we, need, we needed those uh, – we, need, we still need that equipment here in New York, and that's, to me, a terrible tragedy. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of investigations, but I wouldn't reflexively say – uh, the nursing homes were uh, at fault, but I also wouldn't reflexively say, you know, none of this is their fault because they had, I think, obligations uh, that perhaps they were unable to fulfill, but maybe they should have been then louder about that and not waited until these horrific numbers piled up of, of people who were deceased. I've got just about a minute or two left. I do want to note that as a result of your work, uh, there was a good development with the New York City Department of Education you know, being able to provide menstrual products uh, at school distribution sites. Can you talk a little about how this happened? Yes, and, and thank you. You know, it's you know really a, a testimony to the energy of young people in our city. I take my hat off to the young women of the Young Women's Leadership School in Astoria. They wrote to uh, female elected officials, I think actually all different uh, men and women, but I think a lot of us, as we've had more women in office, kind of jumped on it myself and Arizona Simotis and Carolyn Maloney and Grace Meng and Nidia Velasquez and others and really uh, ran with it and kind of were able to make the case that the city has actually got a lot of this, uh, has a lot of feminine hygiene products, does make it available in the normal school day in element, uh, not elementary, in middle schools, uh, intermediate schools, and high schools. And it wouldn't be that difficult to have at the grab and go, go, you know, the meal hub sites to have that product available. And I really think these two young women, uh, Leonard and their teacher, uh, they did a wonderful, wonderful job. And, uh, you know, that's what made me feel good about working the system and working the various bureaucratic levels to make it happen. And I want to thank Chancellor Kranz and his team for listening to these young women and for coming up with a, a good solution and certainly a big step forward. It, it, down the road, I'd like to see it become even more available, but we're starting, I think, with 211 sites. And I can say that, you know, you know, this is a product that was sort of hoarded at the beginning. You know, you'd go to a local drugstore wiped out. So for a young women, that's pretty daunting and kind of horrible to have to start asking around and now, sometimes there's a shyness, so the fact that it's going to be readily available is, is really great and very, very necessary, and I'm proud of those young women very much. 
And uh, just one more uh, topic I just want to bring up before we close. I've been a bit surprised about this, and maybe I should not be surprised about this. I just thought because of this pandemic where many of us were sitting at home, we're on our computers now, we're on our phones, we would be seeing a, a heavy participation rate regarding the, the census. But apparently it has been much lower than expected. Why do you think that is? I think people are uh, preoccupied with um, their own safety and their own economic security for their families. I think that people with young children are struggling to make sure that they um, receive some home instruction, some education, and I just think it's not on people's minds, and we have to, um, and I do think that people, I try to be upbeat about government, I work in it, and I see the good and the bad, and I, I choose to stress the good, but if you're not active in government, I could see where people are pretty fed up and afraid and disgusted and not want to cooperate, don't want to feel that they fill out any form, so we have to keep educating people, um, and certainly Queens has many undocumented people, but I think it's way beyond that, I, you know, though there, I'm sure there is a little bit of a fear factor based on uh, 45 on the, the statements that are made from Washington and the uh, awful things that are said about immigrants. But I think even beyond that, it's more about economic insecurity and people getting very, very anxious. And we have to do more to help people. And if people feel more secure, they'll feel ready to fill out that form. But, yes, it's unfortunately going to have very negative consequences for us in Queens County and in New York City if people don't fill out the form. So we've done a lot of education, and we're trying to use what we can. But, again, not everyone is on electronic media. Not everyone is on social media. Not everyone has a smartphone. So it's, it's, we definitely have to go beyond those methods, and it's hard in a situation like this to do that. And where can people go to learn more about you and the measures that you are pushing for and your work? Well, thank you for that. We we do have a really uh, kind of reinvigorated Facebook page, Assemblywoman Catherine Nolan. I, I'm really thrilled that we've been able to put so much information out there, including things that are uplifting to the spirit, like um, videos from our wonderful botanic gardens in New York and things that are peaceful, and as well as lots and lots of useful information. And people often will uh, both call our district office, and uh, which is 718. 784-3194, or go to the Assembly's website, and then you just Nolan C., or Catherine Nolan website, and the Assembly's website, and you can email me, and uh, we get back to people. We are working remotely. My team is doing a wonderful job. As I said, we're processing over 300 unemployment insurance cases of constituents that have been you know, not receiving their benefits, and we're trying to expedite that for people. So we're trying every way we can uh, to be out there and available to people and uh, be out, you know, when we can. Obviously, you know, we're prohibited to do certain things. because We can't have the kind of town meetings we might have had in a different situation, but we're trying as best we can, and I am on those Zoom calls all day long with various groups. So I hope that we're out there as much and that people feel free to contact us. And certainly doing this wonderful radio interview. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jeff, for asking, and, uh, you know, that's a way to, to, to talk to people, too. Kathy Nolan, thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI. Thank you. You are listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for tuning in. I was just talking with New York State Assembly member Kathy Nolan. My co-host David Brand and I are trying to bring you the voices of your elected officials as much as we can so you can hear from them about their priorities and what they're doing to help us through this period. They readily acknowledge that the economy is not going to rebound quickly, and that makes it tougher for many of us at this time. 
I am witnessing the need that many nonprofits and businesses are facing, and frankly, so is WBAI. We have been around for 60 years. We've had to struggle at times to stay on the air. Last fall seems like a century ago, doesn't it? That's when we were booted off the air for a month, but we fought back and we won and we're still here with you. But the problem is, when Pacifica knocked us off the air, it was right as we started our fall fundraising drive and we had been starting off strong. But then we lost the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of your contributions that helped to sustain us which is why it's crucial to help us now. We want to continue bringing you commercial-free, non-corporate radio, so please step up, show up, support our spring fundraising drive because we want to continue to serve you. A way you can do that is to become a BAI buddy. For $10, $15, $20 a month, it's called a sustaining contribution that you set up on your credit card. You'll get a wonderful tote bag when you become a BAI buddy, and that tote bag has the WBAI logo, and you also get other perks. You can become a buddy by going online to give2wbai.org. That's give2, the number 2, wbai.org. You can also call our call center. That number is 516-620-3602. And when you call, say you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of this program, CityWatch, or any of the programs that you enjoy here on BAI. And there's one other way you can do this. You can text WBAI to 41444 and follow the prompts on your smartphones. I mentioned earlier about how many of us are striving to find ways to find peace and solace during this period, and that my spouse ventured to the beautiful Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn recently. So did thousands of others, apparently. Greenwood Cemetery's tranquil paths and shady trees provide a welcome respite amid the coronavirus. Richard Moylan is president of Greenwood Cemetery and the Greenwood Historic Fund, and he has served the cemetery for 48 years. He first began at Greenwood in 1972 as a grass cutter. He's a lifelong proponent of the arts, and he has inspired many of the cemetery's cultural activities. It was his vision that transformed Greenwood into a place of learning. I wondered how Greenwood is adapting to this new environment, how it's handling the crowds, and about its death cafes, and how they've taken on new meaning during this pandemic. Welcome to WBAI. So visiting Greenwood at this time, what are some of your recommendations and what are some of the precautionary measures you want people to know about if they are considering visiting? Well, I would hope everyone would remember that we are still an active cemetery. Uh, We do 1,200 burials a year and 3,500 cremations. So there are grieving families still arriving. So we'd love you to come and visit and walk around and appreciate our art, history, and nature here. Uh, But we ask that you um, just show the normal respect that you might show in a cemetery as opposed to a park. We like to think we're not a recreational spot. We want to be an inspirational spot. So that would be the main caution in a sense that we have been welcoming the public in and the numbers have been pretty large. Um, Prospect Park has been pretty crowded. So many people have been coming here. We've opened all four of our gates until 7 p.m. 
so we can uh, we can be there for different communities. So depending on which entrance you come in, there are always things to see. There are maps available at each entrance. You can download our app if you don't want to touch paper. Um, so a walk is just a great thing to do for so many reasons in these trying times. Why do you feel that Greenwood has been such an attractive destination during this pandemic? That's, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, it's, it's very, very peaceful as, as, I haven't been to Prospect Park, and I live right down the block from there. I hear it's been pretty, pretty busy, and you have bicycles, and you have dog walkers, and people are thinking, thinking about life now. And as strange as that may sound, they're coming here to think about life among 570,000 people who are no longer alive. But um, it's with 478 acres, you can walk around. And even with 10,000 people coming in our gate last Sunday, you could still find a spot where you look around and you don't see another, another vertical human being. So I think that's been a big part of the attraction. How has Greenwood had to adapt to this new environment? How have you had to shift your operations? Oh, that's, that's been sad in so many ways. Um, we've obviously had to move staff to more of the interment department to handle in-ground burials, which have doubled since since this began. And the cremation situation has really been um, unbelievable. I, we, we, would, we're normal, we normally do eight to 10 a day, and now we're doing 25 to 30 a day. And that's just because that's the maximum we can do in one day. I mean, you used to, you could call up prior to this and say, I'm bringing someone in for cremation in an hour, or I'm bringing someone in tomorrow. Now we're sadly having to take reservations and we're booked through a month from now through the middle, the middle of June. Um, The death numbers have come down a little. So I'm hoping it's ultimately going to impact us. But that's where we've had to dedicate most of our staffing to the to digging graves, to cremating bodies, and to keeping the place clean. Um, since we are open to the public, I didn't think it would be fair to close our restrooms. So we are we, we have restrooms available, and they need to be cleaned thoroughly, obviously. So we've had to stop things like monument restoration now, uh, tree tree pruning. Uh, tree planting, which I'm hoping we can get back to. Uh, so it's been, it's really, it's all hands on deck in those those three areas right now. We even had to unfortunately cancel our workforce development program that we do with the World Monuments Fund and the, the Masons Union um, because, well, because of the whole situation. We had, we were ready to restore a beautiful old mausoleum with young people who were uh, looking towards careers in historic preservation, and we had to postpone it for now. I'm, I'm hoping we can get back to that in the fall, but even that's looking a little iffy right now. It may wind up being pushed back to next year. So that's really what we've been doing. And you were talking a little about the, uh, the volume of requests 
that have come in for services. How is this affecting your colleagues who seem to be working nonstop from what I've read? They are, um, and we're trying to keep our staff healthy too. So we've been trying to work with two different teams in a sense where they get seven days on and seven days off. Uh, but there's been there's been a lot of overtime. Our crematory people have been working 16 to 18 hour days. Um, we're, we're permitted. We've been permitted by the city to keep our crematory going 24 hours. But the equipment really just can't handle that. The equipment needs a rest too. So we've been doing 16 to 18 hours a, a day. And uh, yeah, it's it's taken its toll on staff. I mean, we've been very fortunate. We've had a few positive tests from people who had contact with other family members who um, infected them. Uh, they did their quarantine, and we had no one, everyone that tested positive turned out to be asymptomatic so far. So we've been, we've been really fortunate on that, and obviously we're, we're taking all the precautions here with necessary PPP, uh, PPE, too many PP. Eve and PPPs going around these days. You did mention earlier about the 10,000 people who came in on a specific day, and it brings me uh, to a, a question that I've had about how do you deal with having so many people come in at the same time? I understand that you would put out a call for social distance ambassadors. So what was the response? Oh, the response to that was fantastic. Um, more than 200 people responded. We have 100 people actively helping out at different times. Um, yeah, the problem was a small number of our visitors were treating this too much like a park. Uh, bicycles were sneaking in an, ent uh, an entrance. We'd catch them and, and ask them to leave. People were bringing their dogs in, walking their dogs. Children were running around unattended, and there, there are there are a lot of scary things in here. A lot of these old marble monuments can be easily tipped over. And it just, it, it made us very nervous that, that this was happening. So we, we actually had to threaten to close. We were getting a few complaints from some lot owners and, and they were right. Um, there were, there were some things that were, um, just shouldn't be happening here, but the, the ambassadors have been great. Um, and, and the public's been great, too. We actually asked the public to not come here to walk around on Mother's Day, because Mother's Day is actually the busiest single day for most cemeteries, and it turned out to be a pretty nice day this year. So while 10,000 is still a big number, um, we actually did 10,000 the Saturday before, too. So it could have been a bigger number on that day. So I... I spent about an hour on the grounds this morning, and the place is looking good. Like we haven't, we've been behind on getting grass cut because we were reluctant to bring more people into the workplace. But um, they're cutting grass now, and the place looks pretty good. There's, uh, we're not getting as trash picked up as often as we might, but I didn't see too much. So I think everyone's been cooperating, and I hope we can do this. I and mean, we were. Cemeteries were the first parks. Prospect Park and Central Park used Greenwood as inspiration for their design. Um, so people were doing those kind of things here when they didn't have parks. 
So we're hoping, well, we're not hoping, we're actually doing it. We're getting back to a little of that, and we hope we can keep doing it. You've also created a good amount of virtual events and, and, and quote-unquote tours as well. Can you talk a little about how you've had to shift more towards online? Yes. Um, while, while cemeteries are essential services, our um, our 501c3 people, the, the historic fund people, were really not. So a lot of them are working from home, but they'll come. They've been coming in here and there to do um, virtual tours, uh, actual tours of grave sites. Uh, we've done some uh, programming on on death. Uh, we we continued our death cafe series, which was normally here in our in one of our buildings. Um, so it's it's actually gotten a very good reaction. I mean, we've had between 60 and 100 people on online for these programs. So I was I wasn't sure that they would work out very well. Um, be, well, I'm I'm not one of those people that would probably sit through one of the online things that would go for a while. I mean, these five and seven minute musical things and and the the description of some burial sites have been really interesting, but um, yeah, they've been, they've been very successful. We've been working on some educational programs, so everyone's keeping themselves very busy. You mentioned the death cafes. I would think that they would take on a new meaning and importance right now. Can you just talk about that? Yes. Um, I didn't think doing them through Zoom was going to be successful because I when I, I thought the ones here where people were face to face to with each other that it would be it could that we couldn't match that but because of the situation it's bringing more people there who want to talk about it people who have lost someone or people who are just a little bit afraid right now um, it's so it's it's been there for people and they've been very well attended also. So yeah, it's people, I think the focus of the discussions has shifted a little bit to how do we deal with this when you really can't grieve? When if you've lost someone, even if it's just a friend, not a family member, you know, you, people can't grieve. They're, they, they can say a little farewell at the funeral home and maybe they can't come to the crematory, uh, particularly if it's a COVID-19 victim. Um, so people without that process, be able to complete that process, I think the death cafes have been very helpful for them. So I'm glad we're able to keep, keep doing them. And I've got just about a minute or so left. Uh, as I get ready to close, can you just uh, give me your final thoughts for our listeners? If they're considering a visit, particularly, uh, you know, on these more, uh, on these beautiful days when people want to get back outside. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, please walk around. Um, just keep your surroundings in mind. Um, look around. You'll find something. The beauty, the beauty of the cemetery is you can learn something new every day. I, I'm, I've been here nearly 48 years, and I still go out on the grounds and see something that maybe I did see 44 years ago when I was cutting grass, but um, that I didn't remember. And it has new meaning for me now. We have Memorial Day is coming up. We have veterans from every war from the American Revolution 
do that as a project, locate some. Um, we identified 6,000 Civil War veterans that are buried here, and 1,500 of them didn't have markers, and we worked with the federal government, with the VA, to get markers for them all. Take a look at those. Some of them are very interesting. We even have a few Confederates here. So enjoy. Um, enjoy the peace. Enjoy the tranquility. And come back. And how can people learn more about Greenwood and about your upcoming events? Um, visit our website, www.greenwood.com, and everything's listed there. Thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Anytime, Jeff. Thank you. You're listening to City Watch here on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. Relationships at this time matter as we distance ourselves, keeping in touch with coworkers and friends and family. As many of us take heed that this virus is impacting older adults, particularly those with pre-existing conditions, I wondered how family units are holding up when they're being extremely careful about distancing themselves from older members of their families. So I reached out to Kathleen Stassenberger, author of Grandmothering, Building Strong Ties with Every Generation. Berger's name may be familiar to some of our listeners because of her long engagement in our city's civic life. I first met her when I came to New York City as a reporter covering education. Throughout her career, she's also worked in our city university system and has taught various psychology courses about adulthood and aging and social psychology. So welcome to WBAI. Before we get to the topic at hand, I'd like to first let our listeners know a little bit more about you and your background. You've been with Bronx Community College for three decades. What's your role there? Can you talk about that? Yes, yes. I am a professor. I teach psychology. I have great students. What else do you need to know? Oh, a, a, a lot more. <laughs> ah, okay. So, but you, well, you've been with them for, for some time. Yeah. Uh, Talk a little about, though, what led you uh, to, to this career. Right. Um, well, I am fascinated with people. Uh, so I have teaching is one way you connect with people. And psychology talks about how people confront each other and what they learn about each other. So it's a natural for me. Um, and, uh, you know, it started very early. Do you want to hear about the childhood stuff in fact yes you grew up in minnesota yes yes well i started out in minnesota and actually when i was a little girl my father was away in the military so came to live with us not only me and my brother but my grandmother and my two aunts so there were a lot of people around when i was little and i dealt with them all and then we moved when i was six so I moved from Minnesota to Pennsylvania, big move, but even more, I moved from a public local neighborhood school to an exclusive girls' school. So I think that has a lot to do with my interest in psychology. And I should, I should note, your family also has political connections. I'm, I'm just going to talk a little about that. I'd love our listeners to know about that. All right, all right. Um, yeah, my father was governor of Minnesota, and uh, he went away in the war, and then he actually he ran for president, and he lost, of course, um, and then when we moved to Pennsylvania, 
And then uh, he became part of General Eisenhower's cabinet. So we moved again to Washington, D.C. Um, each time a different school, each time a different neighborhood, and each time different people for me. But yes, he was he was a famous person. Now, for those who uh, are politically involved in the city, or civically involved, I should say, you you have a familiar name. Can you just tell our listeners, uh, before we get to the reason I wanted to have you on the show, can you tell our, li- our listeners a little about your civic involvement here in New York City? Right, right. My formal name and the way my students know me is I'm Kathleen Staffenberger, but my political people know me maybe as Keen Berger, which is my nickname. And I'm the Democratic district leader. I was the Democratic district leader in this area for 14 years and worked very hard to defeat the IDC. So uh, Robert Jackson and Jessica Ramos and Zellner Myrie, I supported them all. Um, They do not know me, but I did my part to get them elected and was very happy two years ago when when they won. And we changed the New York State Senate. So that's part of it. Of course, and in, in addition, in addition to uh, what you have done politically, you've also authored several books, and that's going to bring us to the topic in a few moments. Can you uh, let our listeners know a little about what you've written about? Right, right. Well, my books, my books are textbooks. Um, my main books. Um, I'm working on the 12th edition right now. So I write textbooks for college students, and actually. They are the best-selling textbooks in this field in the whole world. So they're used all over the country, all 50 states, 12 countries, four languages. Um, So they're big, big sellers. And that's what I do professionally is I teach developmental psychology and I write books. But the book we're talking about today is about grandmothering, and that is the one that is most personal to me at the moment. And it's called Grandmothering, Building Strong Ties with Every Generation. It's designed for a general audience. Describe That's a little right. ab- describe a little about the book and what uh you know, who the who the audience is for the book. Yes. Well the audience of course are grandmothers, but also mothers, um and also grandfathers and also fathers. Uh so it really is about different generations. I speak from my own experience as a grandmother. Um, And I speak pretty directly to other grandmothers, but the whole point of the book, I think, is that we need to understand families as multi-generational institutions that help children and everybody else. So that's what the book's about. That brings me to why I was so happy to have you on the show today, because of the world we're living in now. For many people, relationships at this time might be tested. How is COVID-19 impacting relationships? And also, what is a grandmother's role at this time? Good, good question. And of course, I think a lot about that. Um, People relate to each other in many, many ways, and families all need each other in many, many ways. one way that is really disrupted right now is through touch. Uh, touch is a very important sense for people, and we like to hug each other, kiss each other, just touch each other. And I, I have 
three grandsons, but one of them particularly, I took him home on the subway every day on the F train, and he would sit on my lap, and he would touch my face with his sticky hands, and he would touch me all over, and I would hold him all over. I miss that. I miss that. And um, sometimes a seat would appear next to us, and I'd say, Isaac, you want to sit there? And he said, no, no, I want to be on your lap, which made me feel wonderful. Now that I miss, but there are other things we can do now. Um, We can see each other on video. And if there are any grandmothers out there who haven't yet figured out Zoom, figure it out. It's really important. And one of the things you can do on Zoom is you can exercise with your kids. Um, And my, my grandsons love to watch me try, try to do squats and push-ups and hang on one leg and do all those things. And they show me how to do it. And then they laugh. Um, that's an important connection. Also, you- sending, sending letters. We, you know, we, the current generation doesn't send letters anymore. But kids really like getting something in the mail. So something in the mail from grandma would, is another connection. And meanwhile, meanwhile, we should wear our masks. Meanwhile, we should stay healthy. And that's another way to be a good role model for our grandchildren. In the book, you maintain that grandmothers are crucial for species survival. How so? Yes. Uh, historically, for 20, no, 200,000 years, having a living grandmother increase the chances that a grandchild would survive. Partly they got food for the grandchildren. Partly they made sure they didn't fall into the river or run into the jungle. Um, Partly they knew where medicine was. Grandmothers really, literally, the data is very clear, helped grandchildren survive. So grandmothers and grandfathers, too, have always been really important for our species. We would not have lived if we didn't have our grandparents. I read a piece by you in Psychology Today where you wrote that grandmothers today know more so they advise less. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, yes, thank you. Um, We do, I do believe that I know a lot. I do believe I have lived all these years and raised children and know a lot about children. But I also know that parents want the best for their children and they listen to other parents and they listen to other things than their grandmothers. So knowing a lot does not mean you say a lot. It means you, what you know, most important, most important is you help the parents love their children and they can love them all different kinds of ways. Um, You don't get to say how you do it. You have to be quiet about (laughs) how to do it. But, um, but you do need to help them love their children. And that's so what I try to do. Your book provides historical context to the role that grandmothers have played, increasing childhood survival rates, for example, by being available to care for children. But it also poses some big questions. What are grandmothers for? And are grandmothers now superfluous? Yeah. <laughs> Just talk about that. Well, I mean, I do this question in COVID-19. I mean, people suggest sometimes that we don't really need our old people. They could just die and let the economy flourish. That is so wrong. Um, 
You know, money is far from everything. Of course, we need our survival, but what we really need is love and respect from each other. And grandmothers can provide that big time, especially when parents are too harried to do it. Um, Children need that. The suicide rate, for instance, the drug addiction rate, grandmothers can reduce it. They do, in fact, reduce it. Um, So that's how we survive. And uh, what advice do you have for grandmothers listening to the show? Make sure you stay connected. Connect to those grandchildren. And make sure you support the middle generation however you can. Um, And you will be adored and remembered if you learn how to do that right. Staying connected at this time is very important advice for all of us. How can people learn more about you and grandmothering? Right. Um, As you pointed out, I have a Psychology Today blog. I'm also on Medium. And I have this book, uh, Grandmothering, Building Strong Ties with Every Generation. And it's available from the publisher. And it's available from Amazon. My children actually would rather you not get it from Amazon but that's another issue. Um, But it's available in many ways. It's on Audible. Um, So it's available, Grandmothering. And my last name is Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R, Kathleen Stassenberger. Thank you so much for appearing with me on WBAI. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. I thank Kathleen and our other guests, Assemblymember Catherine Nolan and Greenwood Cemetery's Richard Moylan. Of course, I also thank WBAI correspondent Celeste Katz for her latest coronavirus diary dispatch and our intrepid engineer Max Schmid. I'll be back this Thursday at 5 o'clock with Driving Forces, and next Sunday my co-host David Brand takes over here at CityWatch. If you missed any part of the show, go to WBAI's website at WBAI.org and click on Program and then Archives. I wish you the best of health in the coming period, and thanks for tuning in. Mm -hmm.